0: You are listening to the Forgotten News
1: Podcast. But before we begin, here are a few words about a couple of other podcasts that we think you might want to try.
0: Hi, I'm
1: Sunny Hepburn. And I'm Brandy
0: Fleets. And we're from Book Up of Lies. Lies, the podcast where we discuss liars, cheats, and thieves. Scammers and dirty, rotten
2: scoundrels. You can tune in for new episodes every Tuesday to hear about another lowdown, dirty liar. And learn how to spot them.
0: So that's Book of Lies podcast. You can connect with us on social media, Twitter
3: at Book of Lies pod, Facebook and Instagram at Book of Lies podcast.
0: Bye. Bye.
1: County, Cuyahoga County, Coshocton County,
4: Lucas County, Fairfield County, Claremont County,
1: Clark County, Geauga County,
4: Carroll County, Mahoning County, Ross County, Noble County, Knox County,
1: Allen County, Brown County,
4: Licking County, Delaware County, Belmont County,
1: Guernsey County,
3: Crawford County,
4: Portage County. Muskingum County, Ashland County,
3: Madison County, Morrow County, Columbiana County, Franklin County, Morgan County. The United States of America is comprised of 50 states. Ohio is one of those states. Each state is comprised of counties. Ohio has 88 counties. Each county has its fair share of criminal activity, which means that each county has its fair share of criminals. Criminals of all types. In Ohio 88, we will examine the most notorious individual from each one of Ohio's 88 counties. We will explore crimes such as bank robberies, poisoning, shootouts with police, burglary, embezzlement, school shootings, sport ticket fraud, and more. Additionally, we will take a look into the backgrounds of some of the most infamous individuals who called Ohio their home. Some of these people include Charles Manson, Donald Harvey, Ariel Castro, Charles Arthur or Pretty Boy Floyd, Art Schlichter, James Worley, TJ Lane, Eric David Harris, and even the husband and wife duo, Michael and Sharon Grable. Be sure to follow Ohio88 on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for release updates and more. Tuscarawas County, Adams
1: County, Highland County, Athens County,
3: Hancock County, Hardin County,
1: Green County, Fayette County,
4: Warren County,
3: Butler, Harrison County, County.
1: Champaign County,
3: Pickaway
4: County, Stark County,
1: Richland County, Jefferson
4: County, Preble County,
1: Lawrence County,
4: Miami County, Defiance
1: County, Union County, Champaign County,
5: Trumbull County,
4: Montgomery County, Galea County,
1: Wayne County, Jackson County, Clinton County,
4: Ashtabula County, Fulton County, Scioto County.
1: Welcome to the Forgotten News Podcast. This is your window to hear true stories from long ago. Stories that once made headlines. Stories that people thought would be unforgettable. Yet those stories were soon lost in the sands of time or were buried deep in the dustbin of history. In this podcast, we shake off the sand and dust from those stories and share them here with you. As fresh as the day they were first told.
4: And now, here's your hosts.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Welcome to episode 37 of the Forgotten News Podcast.
1: This is Jim.
0: Hi, this is Kit Karen. And
1: thank you for joining us. Listeners, we are going to start by thanking all of you for the incredible response to our previous episode, which told the story of the tragic death of Lou Marsh.
0: It was our most downloaded episode of the past 12 months, and it took almost two years to put it all together.
1: That level of response was beyond all of our expectations i think it will end up being one of our all time most downloaded episodes
0: thank you again to everyone for all the downloads the great feedback and especially for taking the time to listen
1: and speaking of that particular episode which was episode 36 We recently received an email from a listener who was confused by the fact that on iTunes, this podcast is listed as actually having 52 episodes. The reason
0: for the difference is because there are 16 episodes that are just mini episodes. Approximately half the length of a typical episode.
1: In fact, during the first few months of the podcast, back in 2017, there were some that were even shorter than that.
0: And now you know the reason as to why there is a discrepancy of sorts in regard to the exact number. So just to be 100% clear, there are, as of today, 37 regular, full-length episodes of the podcast, including this one. The other dozen or so
1: are all mini-episodes. And, listeners, if you are someone who has listened since episode number one, thank you! Oh,
0: you mean... Including the six months or so that Annabelle D.C. was the co-host before me?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Ah, the Dark Ages. So, yeah. If you were listening then, you definitely have my um, personal thanks and sincere apologies. You earned
1: it. Okay. Thank you, Kit, for sharing those thoughts. I will leave it at that.
0: And now, listeners, first things first. This will indeed be a full-length episode, as I hope that we have now clarified. (laughs) Second, we want to tell you very honestly How deeply sorry we are that it has been several weeks since you last heard from us.
1: The delay was unintended.
0: Because, seriously, you know how busy life can get. Especially now.
1: But, even so, we truly want to apologize for keeping you waiting for so long. However, we hope to do better during the rest of this year in terms of releasing episodes on a more timely basis. But unfortunately, in the time since the previous episode, we both had a bunch of unexpected situations that got in the way.
0: Yeah, life is like that. And... I mean, for example, personally, in my own life, I'm getting over a cold that has been lingering for weeks. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice, and today is the first day that I have felt well enough to record. Also, I was recently in an automobile collision. Now, don't worry, I'm okay. So... I've had to deal with that, but I'm currently stuck in the problem of not being able to drive to work or anywhere else that I really need to go. And with everything going on with the coronavirus, it's just been nuts. And that is my own personal situation. It's a temporary problem, but it's still a huge headache in the meantime.
1: However, probably everyone who is listening to this podcast is in some kind of unexpected or crummy situation right now.
0: Maybe you're suddenly unemployed, or your significant other is unemployed, or maybe you need to work overtime, Or take a second job in order to have money to be able to pay the rent or mortgage or property taxes. Hey, who knows? Maybe you're someone with the coronavirus or some other type of health crisis. There are so many unexpected things that can happen. So many things.
1: Yes, I agree. But. I think that's enough about, um, all that.
0: Ooh, a sudden transition. I like that.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, here is the thing. I am empathetic to every single thing that you are saying. We are both very empathetic people. However, as far as this podcast, I don't think very many listeners really care all that much as to why this episode wasn't here before today. So I think we should just transition to the featured story. Hey, listeners, what do you think?
0: Should we move on Or instead, should Jim and I have a highly detailed conversation about why this episode was delayed? Oh my gosh, every single person thinks that we should move on. Thank you, listeners, for helping us to decide. I love when our listeners participate like that.
1: Boy, you have a special skill for getting instant feedback. I wish I could do that.
0: That's nothing. Just wait until I set up a dating app for our listeners. It will be beyond awesome. Coming soon. (laughs) But, for now, let's just get going with the episode. All
1: right? Jim, are you ready? Okay, okay, almost ready. Keep your pants on. Listeners,
0: my pants are on, and they are staying on. I am always fully dressed for this podcast. Pants, jeans, or a skirt with a blouse or a t-shirt, maybe even a jacket. Sometimes I look really cute. (laughs)
1: Thank you for clarifying.
0: Well, I could describe my current outfit, if you'd like that.
1: Um, no. I think we will leave that to the imagination of our listeners. And instead, on that note, we are definitely moving on.
0: So, okay. Here we go. First we want to remind you that on the second half of this episode, instead of the recommendation segment, we will be reading and responding to listener reviews of this podcast from iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts.
1: So be sure to stay tuned for that because it's been a few months since the last time that we did it. And maybe you will hear Your review of this podcast.
0: Next, listeners, this is the month of March, and as you might already know, March is Women's History Month here in the United States. So, we decided that our first episode of March should have a woman at the center of the featured story. And thus, on this episode, you'll be hearing the story of a young woman who was at the center of an extremely terrible incident that took place in Ohio in 1899. But it had a happy ending a few years later in 1901. This incident was a lynching.
1: Now... You might be wondering, how can there be a happy ending to a lynching case? Well, you will find out if you listen to the featured story.
0: It was definitely not a typical lynching case. And let me tell you, there are a lot of twists and turns along the way.
1: But. As much as we would like for you to listen, we are first going to tell you about a few things in the story that might be too upsetting for some members of our audience, and that way you can decide for yourself if you want to continue to listen or not.
0: Warning, this episode will include a brief description of a violent and cruel physical attack, committed against a young woman and two men by an angry mob. The woman was white, the men were black.
1: The story will be told from information and articles that were published in newspapers and various government records from the time. There were a lot of newspapers that covered the story at the time that it happened. And back then, it was common for newspapers to combine the personal opinions of the editors or reporters together with the actual details of what happened. And they had very strong opinions about the people at the center of our story. And so, we had to take that into account in reading the articles that were published. I also want to mention that there are at least two fairly recent historical reference books that discuss this case in the context of lynching and mob violence as a whole. But their descriptions of this case in those books are extremely short, and some of their information was surprisingly inaccurate, and missing some important details. And, long story short, the time it took to research this story was another reason why it took so long to release this episode. And especially because we kept finding additional small details that we didn't want to leave out.
0: Now, listeners please pay careful attention to what I am going to tell you. Normally, this podcast avoids getting into the graphic details of violence. However, on this particular episode, there is no way for us to be historically accurate without telling the specific facts of what happened to the victims. But Even so, we will keep those details to the absolute minimum necessary to tell the story. And with that in mind, if you think that hearing about any of these things could possibly cause you to have a negative emotional reaction, then this episode might not be something you should listen to. In addition, the story that is being featured is definitely not recommended for children since it could be upsetting or even terrifying to young ears. Parental discretion is strongly advised.
1: And now, with all of that having been said, and if you are ready, on with the show. Listeners, we mentioned a little earlier that our featured story on this episode will revolve around a lynching that happened in Ohio 120 years ago. This was one of approximately two dozen lynchings which took place in Ohio between 1856 and 1932.
0: However, the high point for those lynchings occurred in the 1890s. There were eight lynchings during that decade. Black men were the target in all except two of them. But in 1896, in reaction to the first five of those incidents, the Ohio legislature passed a law that was aimed at preventing future incidents of lynching.
1: And in case you are curious in regard to why we are telling you about the Ohio Anti-Lynching Law of 1896, it is because it plays a very important part in our featured story. By the
0: way, listeners, our featured story on this episode will be told by a guest narrator, but the identity of this narrator will not be revealed until after the end of the story in order to not distract from the story itself.
1: And on that note, here is the story.
2: Our story begins in 1870 when a girl named Nellie Burke was born in the community of Bell Fountain in Logan County, Ohio, which is approximately 48 miles or 77 kilometers northwest of Columbus, the capital of the state. At the time that our story takes place, Bell Fountain had a population of about 5,000 people. Nellie had five siblings, all brothers. Her parents were immigrants from Ireland. It seems likely that growing up in a house with such a large amount of male influence that Nellie was either a tomboy or that she had a pretty strong independent streak. But unfortunately, this is only a guess because we know literally nothing about Nellie Burke until the year 1889, when she married a man named Grant Jackson, who was 24 years old at the time. Nellie was 19. There are no photographs of Nellie, But according to a newspaper article published in 1899, written by a reporter who knew her when she was a schoolgirl, she was, quote, very pretty and very popular, unquote. Another newspaper had this colorful description.
1: She has everything that men dream of, in just the right amounts and in just the right places.
2: Anyway, After her marriage and for the rest of her life, she was known as Nellie Jackson. Her new husband, Grant, was tall, muscular, and handsome. He was also a light-skinned black man. In fact, Grant could easily pass for white. However, in Logan County, this was never a question. Everyone who knew him also knew that he was a black man. And for this reason, the marriage between Nellie and Grant was kind of notorious in the community because interracial relationships were extremely rare at the time. Grant was the son of Edward Jackson, who owned and operated a large livery stable in the nearby town of West Liberty, which was also in Logan County. And in the 1890s, it had a population of about 800 people. The stable had been in business for nearly 20 years at this point and it had made Ed Jackson into one of the most prosperous men in the county. He was very well liked by nearly everyone in town, both black and white. And by the way, in case you don't know what a livery stable is, it was a place where you could get temporary housing and cleaning for a horse or for a carriage. You could also rent a horse or a carriage by the day. Grant Jackson worked at the livery stable along with his father, who was in his 60s. At the time that his son married Nellie. In 1890, a year after the marriage, Grant and Nellie had a baby boy who they named Leland. In 1892, another son is born and his name is Joseph. Now, at this point in time, Nellie and Grant are living a very quiet life in the town of West Liberty as a nice, ordinary married couple. Their names are not in the newspaper, they are as dull as dishwater. The only reason we know anything about them at this point in their lives is because of boring official government records. For example, the US census, their marriage certificate, and the birth certificates for their children. But at some point, Grant apparently got tired of working at the livery stable because in December 1892, he was working as a waiter at a hotel in Springfield, Ohio, approximately 30 miles or 48 kilometers south of West Liberty. The reason we know this is because it was reported in newspapers at the time that Grant had enticed a 29-year-old woman, Elizabeth Hinkle, quote-unquote, a pretty white waitress, to elope with him. However, it appears that Grant had gone to Springfield without telling Nellie, since, according to news articles from December 1892 and January 1893, quote, Grant was tracked down by his wife, who horsewhipped the girl. Unquote. Now, unfortunately, it is unknown why Nellie blamed the girl rather than Grant, but Nellie had evidently convinced herself that Elizabeth, also known as Bessie, had somehow seduced Grant and then tricked him into running off with her. Nevertheless, one thing is certain Nellie and Grant then left Springfield together. However, at around this point, Bessie contacted local law enforcement officers, most probably in response to the horse whipping. But in telling her version of the chain of events, Bessie claimed that she had been kidnapped by Grant and held against her will. The story quickly leaked out to members of the public, and an angry mob gathered in Springfield, intending to lynch Grant Jackson, whom they assumed was being held in the local jail. However, the mob would be disappointed because Grant and Nellie had already slipped away from town by running through the woods and thereby avoided capture by sheriff's deputies or the mob. But the news of the incident in Springfield quickly reached West Liberty. The next day, the local Ku Klux Klan took advantage of the situation and prominently posted notices through the area, demanding that all black residents leave Logan County and threatening dire consequences to anyone who did not obey. It is unclear whether Grant was aware of these ugly warnings because he and Nellie had been on the run. And regardless, they somehow quietly returned to West Liberty undetected. However, it was not long before the local authorities learned that they were in town. Grant was soon arrested and jailed on the charges from Springfield. It is unknown whether Nellie was charged with any crime. A few days later, on the evening of December 26, 1892, The jail was swarmed by a large mob of masked men who dragged Grant from the jail and then poured hot tar over his body and covered him with feathers. Unfortunately, it is not known whether he was recaptured and returned to jail. The outcome of the charges against Grant is also unknown. It does not seem to have been reported in any newspaper. Perhaps the charges were dropped, Possibly the local authorities simply decided that he had already suffered enough. But in the long run, it hardly mattered because almost exactly a year later, Grant Jackson was killed on Christmas Day, 1893, when he got into a fight with Abraham Pyatt somewhere in Logan County. Unfortunately, the exact location is illegible on the death certificate. The two men were both drunk. However, unlike Jackson, his killer was a member of a prominent local family. He was the son of the former postmaster and the nephew of Colonel Don Pyatt, who is a famous author and diplomat at the time. There seems to be no other information about Pyatt except that, according to the U.S. Census, he was 26 years old at this point in time. None of the news stories from 1893 or 1894 give any information as to what they were fighting about. But there is an article from 1899 which says that the fight began when Pyatt discovered that Jackson had been frequently going out with, quote unquote, a pretty girl, whom Pyatt had also been seeing. Yes, listeners, Grant was once again straying from Nellie. The girl, who had turned 21 on Christmas Eve, had apparently led Pyatt to believe that they were in an exclusive relationship. But any joy which Grant received from being a cheating dog was quickly evaporated when Pyatt spotted them together. The two men began saying unpleasant and threatening things to each other, and a physical fight soon broke out. The details and duration of the fight are unknown, but ultimately, Pyatt fractured Jackson's skull with a blackjack, He was subsequently arrested and brought to trial for the killing. Pyatt was sentenced to six years in prison, which he began serving in April of 1893. By the way, I mentioned earlier that Grant Jackson was a black man who was able to pass for white. Interestingly, there is one final proof of this fact, namely that the coroner who signed his death certificate mistakenly identified him as a white man. There was an attempt to obtain a pardon for Pyatt on the basis of his youth and, quote unquote, the distinguished blood of the prisoner, but the request for a pardon was rejected. However, seven months later, Pyatt was released when he successfully won an appeal for a new trial on the basis of his claim that, quote, he had acted in self-defense against a desperado, unquote. Unfortunately, there is no available information regarding whether a new trial was held or the outcome of any new trial, assuming that one was held. But according to the US Census for the year 1900, Abe Pyatt was then living in Florida. He was married with two children. And from this point onward, he is no longer any part of our story. So we will jump back to the year 1894. All the excitement is over and Logan County is no longer in an uproar. Grant and Nellie Jackson are no longer mentioned in any newspaper or in any official document. Nellie's father-in-law, Ed Jackson, invited Nellie to live at his house so she could have a place to stay for herself and her children. In addition, he also offered to pay Nellie to take care of the cooking, cleaning, and laundry during the time when he worked at the livery stable. She was extremely grateful and happily accepts the offer. And so, the life of Nellie Jackson is, once again, calm and quiet. And that is the way that everything remained in Logan County for five long years. Until Friday, November 17th, 1899. On that night, the barn of the town marshal, Daniel Craybill, was burned to the ground. Nellie was a nearby neighbor, and according to newspaper articles from the time, she and Marshall Craybill had been having a feud of some type for at least a year. In fact, some articles went so far as to say that, quote unquote, she hated the marshal. Now, at this point in time, Nellie was 28 years old. She was still living at the home of Ed Jackson and working as his housekeeper. Evidently, the feud was based on the fact that the marshal believed that Nellie was secretly operating a resort. This is a term that was often used in the 19th century as a synonym for a brothel or a house of prostitution. And because of this suspicion, the marshal often watched her like a hawk. It is unclear whether the marshal believed that this suspected resort was located at the Jackson home or elsewhere. Nellie did not like his frequent spying and told him so. In addition, earlier in that year, possibly because of the rumors and suspicions, her two children were briefly taken from her and were placed in the county protective home. So, for probably all of these reasons, Nellie obviously felt like she was being harassed, and at some point during the first week of November, they had a verbal confrontation. It was reported in the aftermath of the fire that Nellie had previously said a few things about Crayville that could be interpreted as threats. On November 16th, 1899, Nellie had a lunch at a restaurant with David Rickard, a 49-year-old cement contractor from the nearby town of Bell Fountain. Rickard was known to frequently stay at the Jackson house. It is probably worth mentioning that Rickard was a tall, light-skinned black man, just like Nellie's late husband. So it was strongly rumored at the time that Nellie and David were secretly having a romantic relationship notwithstanding that he had a wife and two grown children. But it was also reported that he was simply a lodger who would occasionally rent a room at the Jackson House while traveling on business. However, at some point after the two of them left the restaurant, the owner evidently complained to Marshal Craybill that he believed they had stolen several cloth napkins. The marshal was undoubtedly thrilled to hear this accusation of petty theft since it gave him a perfectly legal justification to make a surprise search and thereby to learn once and for all if Nellie was operating a brothel. And so, after a very thorough search, he found no evidence of prostitution. But he did find six cloth napkins, allegedly the property of the restaurant. Nellie and David were charged with theft and were released with a summons to appear for a hearing on the allegation. The next day, at about 1 a.m., the barn of Marshall Craybill was caught on fire and burned down with a cow inside. In addition, two buggies, a harness, and feed were destroyed in the fire. The value of this loss would be the equivalent of several thousand dollars in the present day. Craybill almost immediately suspected and arrested Nellie possibly because of their recent confrontation or because of the threats she had allegedly made. Ed Jackson was arrested because he had tried to prevent or stop the arrest of Nellie. Rickard was also arrested, evidently for no reason, except that he was in the house when the marshal arrived. Nellie was charged with arson. The others were accused of being accomplices. All three were jailed. Nellie denied having anything to do with the burning. She told a newspaper reporter, I was in bed, asleep. I was awakened by the fire and called out to my
4: father-in-law. The burning shingles were falling into our yard. I certainly would not have set fire to a building that was so
2: close to the house that I live in. Now, with this being a fairly small community, it should be no surprise that news of the arrest spread as quickly as fallen leaves on a windy day. And in reaction, shortly after midnight, an angry mob of nearly 200 masked men gathered and marched to the home of Marshal Craybill, the only man who had keys to the jail. It was believed that these men were loosely connected with the Ku Klux Klan or a similar organization. However, because they were masked, it was unknown whether these men were from West Liberty or if they were from somewhere else in Logan County. The leaders of the mob demanded that Crable give them the keys, but he flatly refused and ordered them to leave his property. Evidently, this negative response was entirely unexpected, and a scuffle immediately broke out and Crabill was physically attacked. But the marshal was a large, strong man, and even though he was outnumbered, he was able to hold his ground and easily knocked down his attackers. The mob saw that Craybill was not going to be intimidated, and they soon left, marching in the direction of the jail. The county sheriff and his deputies made a valiant effort to protect the jail, and also the prisoners after being notified of the approach of the mob. However, the mob eventually managed to force these law officers out of the way by throwing large rocks, bricks, and sharp objects that soon resulted in severe injuries to the sheriff and the deputies. Then, according to a news report from the Associated Press, quote, the jail door was attacked with crowbars and sledgehammers, which the mob had secured and it was forced from its hinges. They then knocked the cell locks to pieces and the three cowering and stricken inmates were dragged into the street, unquote. The mob then marched the three prisoners to a nearby stream of cold, rushing water. They stopped when they reached the sandy bank alongside the stream. Nellie and the two men were stripped naked one at a time, and a bucket of roof paint was then poured over each of their heads. The mob then painted most of the rest of their bodies using large paintbrushes, and then once this painting was finished, they were coated with feathers. Now, simply for the purpose of historical accuracy, please take note that there are at least two reference books written within the past 10 years that describe this incident, and they say that the three captives were tarred and feathered. But that statement is inaccurate. There was no tar, only paint. It definitely was not much better to be covered with paint, except that tar is a lot harder to remove from human flesh and is much more painful on skin. The same two reference books also say that they were whipped by the mob. This does not seem to be true based on newspaper articles from the time. Instead, it appears that they were beaten with clubs, tree limbs, and sticks. Now, it's hard to say which would be more terrible, whipping or being hit with clubs, but it probably doesn't matter because once the mob got tired of hitting them, they forced the three of them to go into the stream, which is about three feet deep. Next, they were grabbed by various members of the mob and held underwater until they were nearly unconscious. Then after finally being allowed to stand up in the water, the mob began wildly firing bullets in their direction. According to a newspaper report, over 250 shots were fired. However, miraculously, no one was killed, although Ed Jackson received a bullet wound beneath his left arm. Nellie and David were not hit by any of the gunshots. But when the three victims were eventually permitted to come out of the water, Nellie was immediately and repeatedly stabbed in her breasts with knives and other sharp objects. The cuts were bloody and deep, but not fatal. Her shoulders and face were also badly cut. Rickard and Ed Jackson were also slashed and cut by the mob. There are some articles which say that at some point after the water torture, some type of acid was thrown in the faces and eyes of the Jacksons and Rickard. Other articles do not mention this, so the accuracy of this detail is unclear. However, in any event, the mob then tied the three prisoners together with ropes and forced them to walk naked the eight miles or 12 kilometers down the road to the city of Bell Fountain. But just before they began this walk, they were given another beating with clubs and broken tree limbs and were ordered to never return to West Liberty. The mob apparently dispersed after following behind their captives, for a distance of five miles. However, the three bloody victims continued to walk until they finally reached Bell Fountain. They were still naked when they arrived, except for a few articles of clothing that had been contributed by a farmer near the town who had taken pity on them. According to a news report from the Associated Press, the Jacksons and Rickard arrived in Bell Fountain, quote, in almost dying condition, unquote. Particularly Ed Jackson. Who was over 70 years old at this time. A doctor who examined him stated that his body was covered with cuts and bruises. He expressed serious doubt that this elderly Jackson would survive his injuries. Rickard had a deep, long cut on his back, and one of his eyes was nearly knocked from its socket. According to a description by a physician who was called to treat Nellie's injuries, Most of her upper body was quote-unquote terribly lacerated, but especially her breasts. Nellie went to the home of a relative in Fountain, while Rickard and Jackson stayed at Rickard's home in the town. Meanwhile, the mob in West Liberty apparently decided that they had a few more things that they needed to do. First, they destroyed the large livery stable owned by Ed Jackson and sent the horses and his other animals to run wild. They then broke out all of the windows of the Jackson house with rocks and bullets. The doors of the home were smashed open. Furniture was dragged into the street and broken into bits. At some point, a few days later, the sheriff in West Liberty learned that the Jacksons and Rickard were in Bell Fountain, so he quickly arranged for them to be returned to jail on the charge of arson in regard to the barn of Marshall Craybill. The three were brought to a preliminary hearing. Each of them pled not guilty and were scheduled for trial. But first, on November 21st, Nellie and Rickard were brought to trial in regard to the case of the allegedly stolen napkins. They were each fined and sentenced to 15 days in the workhouse. Now, listeners, at this point, you may be wondering, what about all the violence and damage committed by the mob? Was it just ignored? Well, at first, there seemed to be a widespread belief that nothing would happen to the men who participated in the mob. In fact, there were comments in several newspaper articles that because they were disguised with masks, no one would ever be identified, let alone arrested or prosecuted. However, those opinions turned out to be wrong. Identifications were made despite the masks. And on the day after the mob attack, the county prosecutor, Samuel West, announced that he expected to bring charges and make arrests of the leaders of the mob very shortly. Then, on November 28th, he announced that there would be a special grand jury session in Bell Fountain during the following week in regard to the mob attack, and that approximately 25 citizens of West Liberty had been subpoenaed to appear and testify under oath. The grand jury eventually indicted six men who evidently were the instigators and leaders of the mob, The verdict in regard to these criminal charges is unclear, since the outcome does not seem to have been reported in any newspaper at the time. But the three victims soon filed lawsuits against the same six men, as well as against Logan County, for the failure to prevent or stop the mob attack. The lawsuits were filed under the Ohio Anti-Lynching Law of 1896. This was a law that had been passed by the Ohio Legislature, In response to a wave of lynchings and other violence by mobs that occurred in various places in Ohio in the early 1890s, the specific purpose of the law was to prevent and punish any such future incidents by strictly prohibiting, quote, any act of violence by a mob upon the body of any person, unquote. The law defined a mob as any group of people assembled for the purpose of causing injury or damage to anyone. In other words, under this law, The victim was not required to be dead, and a lynching was not required to be a hanging. The law authorized a victim or the family of a victim to sue for damages if the victim was killed or injured, or if property was damaged or destroyed. The lawsuit could be brought against either the members of the mob or against the county for not preventing or stopping an attack by the mob. In addition, prosecutors were allowed to bring separate criminal charges. And at the time that this law was passed, it was the strongest anti-lynching law in the United States. A jury heard the lawsuit of Nellie Jackson, Edward Jackson, and David Rickard against Logan County in 1901. The county was found liable under the law. Nellie was awarded $700. That's the equivalent of $22,000 in present day. Edward and David were each awarded $1,000 the equivalent of $31,000 in the present day. Unfortunately, there is no newspaper article in regard to the result of their separate lawsuit against the leaders of the mob. And from this point onward, none of these three individuals were ever mentioned again in any newspaper, anywhere, not even for an obituary. So listeners, as much as I hate to say it, that brings us to the end of our story.
1: Listeners, I think that is one of the most unusual stories that we have ever had on this podcast.
0: Honestly, that story was very crazy and wild, and I honestly just don't know what to say. <laughs>
1: um, that was a crazy, crazy story. Oh, yeah. That was my reaction, too. It was unbelievable.
0: Um, that story was a wild ride.
1: Well, for the benefit of our listeners, I'm going to give the story behind the story as far as this podcast is concerned. Okay. A few months ago, I was researching an entirely different story, and I happened to see a one paragraph article in a newspaper from 1901 that mentioned that this woman named Nellie Jackson had won a lawsuit under the Ohio Anti-Lynching Law of 1896, and I had never heard about this incident. So I just took a screenshot of the article, and I thought to myself that if I could find a few more details... It might make an interesting story for this podcast. And I more or less put it aside. And then a few weeks ago, I happened to think of it and started doing some research. Started looking for her name through either Google or through digitized newspapers and basically everywhere I thought I might be able to find something. And eventually, I collected like a large amount of material, and most of it was really a surprise. And the more I looked, the more I found. It was just one thing after another. And then all these little side stories about her marriage, uh, the uh, killing of Grant Jackson, her fussing with the town marshal, the napkin incident the barn burning, the Ku Klux Klan, the angry mob, the destruction of Ed Jackson's house and livery stable. It was just an incredible amount of information.
0: Honestly, there are some incredible twists and turns. It starts with her looking like she's going to be this trailblazer at age 19 for having an interracial marriage in a small, small, rural town at a time when that was extremely rare but then it spins off into her looking a little crazy when her husband cheats on her she blames the girl and horsewhips her that's insane right there to me <laughs> um and then of course she gets cheated on again and next, of course, the mystery of whether she burned down the barn of the town marshal. <laughs> it's all like a bit of a soap opera. Followed by her getting almost beaten to death by a mob of crazed men. Um, but, of course, she gets the laugh laugh with the lawsuit that she won. The amount doesn't seem like a lot. In today's money, but it probably went a lot further in the early 1900s. Very strange, however, that there's no trace of her after the lawsuit.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) Yeah. Listeners, it took me a pretty long time to summarize the story into a script that our guest narrator was then able to present in a really good way. And she did a great job of telling the story. Yes, indeed. By the way, I just want to mention, the main reason we had a guest narrator is because Kit Karen was sick with a cold, and I was recovering from a cold myself. And I just didn't want to put either one of us to the extra strain of needing to tell this wild, bizarre story. Okay. Well, it's just a heck of a story. Yeah. I don't know what else to say.
0: Maybe we should just
1: move on. Okay. I agree. But first, I want to take a moment and thank our guest narrator and the other guest voices on the story.
0: So take a bow and tell our listeners all about yourselves.
2: My name is Megan Skeels, host of the Shallow Dive podcast. The Shallow Dive touches on everything from true crime, haunted places, retro television, and pop culture. Join me over at the Shallow Dive and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Shallow Dive Pod. You can email me suggestions for the next episode or hire me for all of your voiceover needs by sending a message to ShallowDivePod at gmail.com. Just don't say I didn't warn you.
5: Amelia Lobby
2: Bar, host of a silly
5: little podcast called Pitney
3: and Amelia's Bitchin' Boutique.
1: Hello, listeners. My name is Chris Hart, and I have been collecting spray paint can marbles for most of my life. My wife and I enjoy live theater, travel, Britain, Formula One, and more travel. I'm from Florida and
0: cringe, yet laugh at Florida Man memes. If you are interested in using my voice, I am available for freelance audio projects of any type. Shoot me an email at chris at chris dot com. That's chris at C-H-R-I-S-H-A-R-T.com. Cheers! Once again, thank you, everyone.
1: Yes, many, many thanks.
0: And now, listeners, moving on, we will present the latest installment of our regular segment, Police Blotter and Court News, in which we bring you stories of small-time crooks and other random men and women who, for one reason or another, ended up in the jaws of the justice system a century or more ago. And this particular segment will be narrated for you exactly as it was published in the Cleveland Plain Dealer on September 27th, 1887. However, before we begin, we will mention two quick things. First, in regard to money, any time that you hear any amount of money described in this segment, please take note that $1 in 1887 is the equivalent of approximately $25 in the present day.
1: So, if the amount of a fine or anything else seems low to you, it isn't.
0: Second, we will now give a short warning to listeners before we begin the segment. Please be aware that in the Police Blotter and Court News segment on this episode, there will be brief mentions of drunkenness, violence, and sex crimes.
1: So, listeners, if you think that any of these topics might trigger a negative emotional reaction, then you should probably skip ahead to about seven minutes from now, give or take a few minutes.
0: And with all of that having been said,
1: here we go.
3: Police Blotter and Court News.
1: Order in the court.
5: Municipal Court, Cleveland, Ohio, September 27, 1887. Sarah Connolly, charged with battery for pulling Maggie Duff's hair, was fined $1 in court costs. Michael Fitzgerald and his wife, an old couple, were found drunk and disorderly on Monday night at the corner of Erie and Eagle Streets. They were each fined five dollars in court costs together with ten days in the workhouse. Nicholas Lutz, charged with assault and battery upon Rose Hiller, was given a hearing and discharged. On Tuesday morning, there were fifty-two cases on the docket. Of these, thirty were for public intoxication. Mary Malice, Anna Hackley, and Louisa Mallendorf, who were arrested and taken out of a house of prostitution on Canal Street, were each given sentences of $10 in court costs, together with 30 days in the workhouse. Simon Krakowski, a Polish man, raised bedlam in his cell on Monday night, suffering from hallucinations, and possibly might still have been, while in the courtroom, He was given a sentence of 30 days in the workhouse and court costs, but with fine waived. Three young men were arrested on Detroit Street on Monday for conducting themselves in a noisy and boisterous manner. William Galt was fined $1 in court costs, Thomas O'Malley was given $2 in costs, and Patrick Riley was discharged. Bruce Wakefield, a teamster from Randall, came to Cleveland with a billy club in his pocket. He became intoxicated and was arrested. The judge fined him court costs and 30 days in the workhouse on the charges of public intoxication and carrying concealed weapons. He then told Wakefield that the sentence would be waived on condition that he leave the city within 24 hours. Howard Slusser, a boy from Toledo, drank too much beer and wound up throwing stones at the new Clarence building on Euclid Avenue. He was soon arrested, and then Howard spent a weary night in the lockup. The judge let him off with a fine of two dollars and court costs. Martin Grubb of 550 St. Clair Street was charged with being an incorrigible boy. He was given a hearing and some very good advice. He was then discharged. Isaac Gottlieb, a peddler who lives at 85 Hill Street, was shown to have acted disorderly toward Mary Candace, who informed the judge that, quote, My husband is sick, and I am the mother of ten children, unquote. Isaac was fined court costs with fine waived for using vile language toward the mother of ten children. Charles King was charged with assault and battery and also having committed an outrage upon Bridget Elwood, an Irish girl, 16 years of age, who had arrived fresh from Ireland at the train station in Cleveland on Sunday evening at about 8 o'clock. She had the address of her uncle, Mr. James Comerford, with whom she was to stay. A policeman took charge of the girl while she was at the depot, and after finding out that she wanted to go to her uncle's house at 54 Detroit Court on the west side of town, and since it was a good distance away he thought it would be best to send her there in a hack he hired one driven by charles king twenty-one years of age the policeman committed the girl to the care of this hackman, and they drove away king then took advantage of the situation after driving to the west side he stopped his hack on a dark street then overpowered bridget and committed a foul outrage upon her she brought a criminal complaint against mr king and briefly told the judge what had happened. I was sitting in
4: the back of a hack, and we started off. The driver, Mr. King, first drove up a long, busy street. I didn't think we were ever going to come to the end of it. I saw a lot of shops on both sides. There were men and women along the way. They all seemed to be in a hurry. Then, as we were going along, I saw a railroad crossing— and when we were almost in front of it, Mr. King turned a corner onto a street that was dark and empty. I did not see a soul anywhere. Then he stopped the horse and got down from the hack. He came to where I was seated in the back and opened the door. Mr. King said that he had seen a train coming and that he needed to stop and wait for it before we could continue. I told him that I did not see or hear any train. He told me that I was mistaken, and that he thought we could exchange some pleasantries while we were waiting. He then climbed in and sat himself next to me. He started talking about the weather and such, but it was just a few moments later that he began making improper advances. At first, I pretended that I had not heard him, but then... He pulled out a knife from his coat and told me that I could expect a stab if I continued to be unkind to him. I started to scream, but almost as soon as I did, he said he had a revolver and that if I screamed, he would kill me. I decided to scream anyway. I shouted murder, but he put his hand over my mouth. One of his fingers had slipped in between my lips, and so I bit it as hard as I could mr king began making threats again and brought the knife near to my throat i was very fearful of being killed and there was no one nearby that i could beg to help me so i had no choice except to consent to my ruin he accomplished his purpose and then drove around for some time mr king then stopped the cab again he went back to where i was seated And he sat next to me again he made me swear an oath to him that i would not divulge anything that had taken place i then begged mr king to take me to my uncle's house he did and we arrived at about half eleven that night he told me to say that my reason for being so late was that i had taken a later train and that he was an acquaintance whom i had known in england my aunt took me up to her bedroom and then i told her all that had occurred my uncle had already suspected that everything was not all right and when he later found out what mr king had done he told the police and they came to me and i told them everything
5: that had happened on that night king was asked by judge kelly if he desired to make a statement he said he had nothing to say the judge then stated his belief that the case against king should be brought before the grand jury for consideration of indictment on felony charges. He thereupon bound him over to the Court of Common Pleas for that purpose, but allowing bail in the sum of one thousand dollars. Miss Elwood, the young girl assaulted, is a brunette of good appearance. She has lived in both Ireland and England. King told the judge that he had not been a hack driver for very long, so he did not have any money for bail. After listening to this statement, the judge ordered King to be immediately taken to the jail pending transfer of his case to the Court
0: of Common Pleas.
1: This court now stands adjourned.
0: And that brings us to the end of the police blotter and court news segment for this episode. We hope you enjoyed this brief visit To the dark side streets of the past. A visit that you are very unlikely to experience anywhere else. Now, moving on. We would like to express our deepest thanks to the excellent guest narrator and guest voices on the Police Blotter segment. Please take a bow and tell our listeners a little about yourselves.
5: From the heartland of America, I'm Shannon Jensen, champion of the right to read, defender of those who walk the thin blue line, and host of a brand new podcast coming soon. This is Sinead,
4: genuine Irish person and law nerd, and host of Men's Rare, a true crime podcast.
3: My name is Elizabeth Palmer, and I'm the host of Underestimated, a podcast about the people, places, and things that are often underestimated in life and shouldn't be. So if you're looking for a podcast that is like uh, the center of that Venn diagram, where an awkward host, a inappropriately timed dog bark in the background, and social justice storytelling come together, then this podcast is probably for you. You can find Underestimated wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening have
0: a good week. Yeah! And once more, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks
1: again. Thank you again to everyone listeners. We would very much like to be able to tell police blotter stories from the 19th century newspapers of your city or town. So, if you have the time, and ability, just send it to us by email. The address is forgottennewspodcast at
0: gmail.com.
1: <clears throat>
0: now, listeners, as promised on our previous episode, we are going to be skipping our recommendations and advice segment, and instead we are now going to give shout outs to anyone who recently left a review on iTunes. For the Forgotten News Podcast. But first, before I begin, we would like to apologize for the fact that we haven't given shoutouts on our most recent episodes.
1: We are really sorry about that.
0: We just get so busy with doing research and writing scripts and recording stories that it just gets past us. So on this episode, we will be including all reviews that we have gotten since the last time we did a listener review segment. Unfortunately, we will not have any reviews from outside of the U.S. because the app that we use to collect reviews has stopped providing international reviews. So, until we are able to find a new app that collects international reviews, we will be limited to U.S. reviews only. I will read the reviews in chronological order. In other words, from earliest to the most recent, based on the date the review was posted on iTunes.
1: Kit and I will then respond to each review in whatever way that we think is appropriate, depending on whatever comment is made within the review itself.
0: And with those clarifications out of the way, here we go. The first review is from Lar Finding. It is a five-star review. The headline is Great Podcast. And this is the review. Quote, What a unique podcast. It isn't something I would typically listen to, but I am glad I did. Definitely check it out. Unquote. Thank you so much for that review, Lar. I am so glad, and I know Jim is as well. We are so glad that you enjoy it.
1: I absolutely agree that this is a very unique podcast. I think it's truly one of a kind.
0: And it's always nice to find something that you wouldn't typically listen to and you actually like it. So I'm so glad you gave us a chance.
1: And thank you for that review.
0: The next review is from Trucker Tina. It is a five-star review. The headline is, great, with an exclamation point. And this is the review. Quote, love the podcast. I just found your podcast, but I have been binge listening as I am a truck driver and have lots of time, LOL, keep up the good work, Unquote. I am so glad that you love the podcast and that it's able to keep you company during your long trips.
1: I am always glad to hear that a new listener likes the show, and I also like being able to listen to podcasts while I work and I'm so glad that you have a job where you are able to do that
0: thank you so much trucker Tina for all you do and thank you for being a loyal listener
1: and thank you for that review
0: the next review is from Johansson's 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 217 sorry if I said that wrong johannessons (laughs) it is a five-star review the headline is love this podcast entertains me at work in car and at home and this is the review quote i came across this pod while binging the story behind podcast you know When you all stole the show on the April Fool's episode, LOL, binging your show is very entertaining. I love the warnings and appreciate the researched stories and the news readings at the end. Keep it up, guys. Unquote.
1: Uh, Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know what this reviewer is talking about, last April Fool's Day, just for fun, We did a swap with Emily, the host of the Story Behind podcast. We hosted her show and she hosted ours. It was part of a big April Fool's Day joke where a lot of podcasters switched to being the host of someone else's show for just one episode. It was a lot of fun and we are so glad that you liked it.
0: Thank you so much, Johansons. Again, I'm so sorry if I'm saying that wrong. (laughs) I'm so glad that you enjoyed us so much on the story behind that you actually started to listen to our show. And I am so glad that you love the warnings and the news readings at the end. I am so glad you like that. It is definitely something that is interesting in reading directly from newspapers what was going on at certain dates in time. Thank you for listening.
1: And thank you for that review.
0: The next review is from Elvis Imelda. It is a five-star review. The headline is Free Range Preacher. And this is the review. Quote, if you like quirky, this show is great. Unquote. Well, thank you so much, Preacher. I'm so glad that you find us quirky and you enjoy the show.
1: This show is definitely quirky. And thank you so much for liking that aspect of the show.
0: Thank you so much for listening.
1: And thank you for that review.
0: The next review is from Pat Novak. It is a five-star review. The headline is my favorite podcast, and this is the review. Quote, I was going to write about how much I love your unusual and well-researched stories, but I noticed that a couple of reviews made snotty comments about the fact that Karen sometimes giggles. Personally, I very much appreciate those giggles. They help to offset the most painful stories and they enhance the ones that are lighthearted, unquote. So I'm going to do the next two, which are not so nice, but the ones that he's referring to. So this brings us again to one of those reviews. It is from Six Sticks. It is a one star review. The headline is annoying podcast and this is the review Quote, "what is going on with the giggles by the girl host for that reason alone i can't listen to this podcast it's just too much" there's a somewhat similar review from someone named blackberry girl mom well, It's similar, but it's a little more mean. But don't worry, listeners. We're tough. We can take it. I mean, I saw the movie Mean Girls, you know. Toughen my skin. So, (laughs) moving on. This is a two-star review. The headline is, I can't. I'm just imagining her being all dramatic. I can't. And this is the review. Quote, The stories are absolutely fascinating. However, the female host seems to have a bit of a speech impediment. Nothing wrong with a speech impediment. However, it may not be the best idea to host a podcast if you do have one. Also, Her giggle is annoying. Someone must have told her that it was cute. They lied. I'm sure the hosts are lovely people who do very thorough research, which is why I gave them two stars. But I'm sorry. I just can't listen to this podcast. Unquote. (laughs) Listeners. In my opinion, an occasional giggle actually serves an important purpose. In fact, two important purposes for you the listener. First, it lets you know that even if the topic of an episode is ugly or dark, that we love you and we care about you. Because As one of the reviewers commented, a giggle now and then helps to soften the pain and impact of a tragic true story. And if it is an episode where we have a guest narrator, and if there is a giggle here or there, once the story is finished, well, maybe think of it as aftercare, especially if the story has been something that was tense or brutal. Listeners, it comes down to this. We love knowing that you are here with us. You matter. And because you matter, we want you to have a good listening experience. And to enjoy every episode. Secondly, and this is just an observation, there are dozens of podcasts, including some very well-known podcasts, where the hosts will practically cackle with laughter and even tell jokes while discussing some horrible murder, rape or kidnapping well listeners let me tell you something i think that is disgusting i know that jim feels the same way and i guarantee you will never hear anything like that on this show because we respect everything that we are talking about And we know that it's people's lives. And not only that, one last thing. The sound of a giggle actually creates a barrier against against all of the hate that other people give you in everyday life. And I absolutely love that fact. I guess not everybody feels the same way, but at least pat feels that way and i'm so glad that you do enjoy those giggles pat now i'm sorry six sticks that you can't listen because of the giggle i apologize but we are a free podcast after all but this brings me to the review by blackberry girl You know what? I never really thought that I would have to talk about this. But I do kind of have a speech impediment. Or a speech condition, I guess you would call it. It's the symptom of a larger neurological disorder that I deal with. It's something called dysarthria. And it's basically where you... Slur your speech because your speech might be weak because you have difficulty controlling the muscles that you use for them for doing those speech things. (laughs) Okay. Dysarthria is a condition in which the muscles you use for speech are weak or you have difficulty controlling them and so sometimes your speech comes out as slurred. So sometimes people think I'm drunk, even though I'm not. But her comment about maybe you shouldn't have a podcast. Well, I don't know. But again, we're free. And if my speech becomes. So bad that you can't understand me. And right now I'm sick. So. That. Is something. But if my speech gets so bad. That no one can understand me. Of course. I will step down as co-host. But until then. I would like to use my voice. So. I'm sorry Blackberry girl. But. My voice is here to stay, at least for a little while.
1: All right. I will mention that earlier this year, Kit Karen mentioned to me in an email that she has this speech impediment that she just described to you. And the truth is, I personally never noticed anything, but she felt the need to tell me in case... I ever felt that something in her vocalization was not quite right. But I am going to say this, that it was very mean for the person who left that review to use the term speech impediment as a personal attack on Kit, and then to basically say that she really didn't mean anything by it. In my opinion, it's like using a racial slur against someone and then saying that you didn't mean what you just said. Yeah. And I am going to say as far as the <laughs> giggle controversy or issue, I have no objection. In fact, I'm a fan. I happen to like an occasional random giggle. It it improves my mood. And frankly, It makes me feel happy.
0: And also, please keep in mind, as I once said on a previous episode, this is not exactly NPR.
1: (laughs) And if something makes us laugh or giggle, we are going to laugh or giggle. And that is just where I stand. I think Kid is great, and I think her giggles are great, and in my opinion... This entire giggle controversy is just ridiculous. And that is all I'm going to say about that.
0: Okay, listeners, here is the final review. It is from... Marsankar? Again, I apologize if I said that wrong. It's a unique name. It is a five-star review. The headline is fabulous, with an exclamation point. And this is the review. Quote, The Christmas special is truly special. I've already listened to it three times. I'll probably listen to it again, and again. Thank you for this. Unquote. Listeners, just in case you don't remember... The Christmas special was when we presented the 1938 radio dramatization of the story A Christmas Carol, produced and narrated by Orson Welles. We also told the story behind the story of how and why the play came to be and the reaction of the public. Honestly, I am so glad that you enjoyed that episode. It was definitely one that we really enjoyed making. It is such a great, great radio play, and it deserves to be heard. Thank you for that review. Thank you so much for commenting, and I'm so glad that you are able to listen to it over and over.
1: And we are now at the end of our listener review segment.
0: Thank you again to everyone who gave us a review.
1: And speaking of reviews, we would truly appreciate if you would go to iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts, and write a review for the Forgotten News Podcast. However, only five-star
0: reviews. Okay? (laughs) Thank you for that. And listeners, If you want to give any comments about this episode or any episode, just send us an email, ForgottenNewsPodcast at
1: gmail.com. You can also comment on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for the Forgotten News Podcast in the search box.
0: And if you would like to chat with me personally, I'm available on Twitter. Just type, at Kit Karen as one word, K-I-T-C-A-R-E-N. I'll be glad to talk to anyone. DMs are welcome. Just don't be nasty. Or naked. <laughs> be nice. That's all I ask. Okay, Kit. What's next? Actually, that's it. Wait, what? As much as I hate to say it, we have reached the end of the episode. Seriously? I'll check my notes.
1: Mm. Yep, that's it. Bye, gotta go. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll be back for the next episode.
3: Um, I love you guys. Thank you
0: so much.
2: Hmm.
0: And remember, history is no mystery.
1: Thank you for listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. You will now be returned back to the present day and we hope that we can count on you to join us for our next
0: episode. mistakes in history were made by people who didn't think. Listeners, the Forgotten News Podcast needs your help. You can help us to have more and better episodes on a more frequent basis. And the help we need is financial. Seriously, if only a small percentage of our listeners would contribute even a dollar or two, it would not only help to offset our expenses, but we could also set aside more time to create and record more episodes. And who? We've made it easy to contribute. Just go to the address bar of your computer, laptop, or whatever other device you are using and type paypal.me backslash forgotten news podcast. paypal.me backslash forgotten news podcast. But... Type that as if it were all one word, then contribute whatever amount you want. A dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you can afford. And thank you, listeners, for doing that.